It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ready to get your glitter on? Then head to Worlds of Fun Grand Carnival from July 23rd through August 7th for a larger-than-life shimmering celebration. Join the spectacle of color, a dazzling parade of floats, performers, music, and beads that sweeps across the park. And take your taste buds on a world tour while dancing to music after dark. Save over 45% with a Carnival bundle which includes admission, parking, and three food tastings. Only at worldsoffun.com. It is the Blue Room on Radio City Talk. Another week, another eventful week for Everton Football Club, wasn't it? Um, starting at Anfield on Sunday in the studio to join me very shortly to have a chat about that. will be Jack Carlisle, Paul McPartland and Conor O'Neill. What's the first part of the show today? We're going to have a bit of a change attack there. I'm sure every Evertonian out there saw the interview that was done by the Financial Times last week with Alicia Rosmanoff, of course, the Russian and Uzbeki billionaire who is a good friend of Farhad Mashiri, who's been rumoured to be getting involved in Everton for a long time. He sat down with Henry Foy from the Financial Times to have a chat about all sorts, including Everton, and he hinted he might be looking at investing in Everton in the future. Uh, so I had a chat with Murad Ahmed, who is a sports correspondent for the Financial Times. Here's what he had to say about what was a really fascinating interview. Yeah, and Murad does join me now to have a chat about that Alicia Usmanov piece. Uh, Murad, thanks very much for, for coming on the show. No problem. Uh, first of all, of course, this was your, your colleague, uh, Henry Foy, who sat down with uh, Alicia Usmanov. Um, from the impression I get from, from the article, uh, from what we know about the man himself, uh, it's quite rare for him to do media briefings like this. Yeah, he likes to keep himself to himself. He's, a, he's an incredibly rich man with, uh, let's say, a colourful past who uh, doesn't traditionally want particularly Western journalists asking a load of awkward questions. So he, he, he tries to shy away from this sort of thing. But uh, like you say, my, my colleague Henry managed to convince him to sit down over, it sounds like a lot of vodka shots um, in a... <laughs> in a Bavarian um, restaurant, which he, he, he seems to like. So um, so it was rare, and uh, Henry got the chance to ask him about Everton, and, and you've got to do that at this moment in time. Yeah, just just on, on the interview itself first, I think it was it was fascinatingly you know, put together, and I think one of the things that 
from what we've read about Ali Shuzmanov in the past and, you know, the, the tentative links that he's had with Everton so far, I think it's always been quite difficult to sort of get a read on his personality because, like you said, he tends to keep himself quite far back from from Western journalists, even when he was involved at Arsenal. Very rarely did, did he speak out and talk about his ambitions and that kind of thing. Do you feel as though this piece sort of got across the, the personality of what he's like as a fella? Yeah, I think it gave you a snapshot. I think it's really, really hard to know because a lot of his history is very murky. It, 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 a lot of the a lot of the wealth that was made um, post the breakdown of the Soviet Union um, happened pretty much in the dark. What we know is that you know sixty odd uh, men, mostly men, came out with the, the vast majority of the wealth of. Russian society, and Alicia Osmanov was one of them. Um, how all of that happened is, is you know, debated um, uh, around the world. I think if you read the piece, you get a, a potted history of some of the sorts of people he's had to deal with, and, and let's just say some of them are quite unsavory characters. Um, you know, uh, there has been, uh, we should be honest, there's been criticism of the of the piece itself for not going far enough from uh, Russian dissident. Um, and let's be honest, there has been criticism of the Financial Times interview um, with Alicia Ismanov by Russian dissident um, politicians who say that we didn't go far enough, we didn't ask hard enough questions, um, we didn't raise a, a load of issues that we should have raised. Uh, it, it's very difficult in in the setting to get to ask everything, but I think uh, anyone who reads that piece will will get a good idea of of his history, his character, um, uh, and uh, the kind of the crazy way that these uh, these people ended up getting their getting their money and their huge wealth. Well, could you provide a, a little bit more insight in in regards to that? Because before we go on to talk about the potential future association with Everton. Clearly, this is a man who's already got his fingerprints on the football club because the training ground mm. is sponsored by him. He's, he's very well linked with Farah Mashiri. And I think one of the, the things that, you know, certainly a lot of people have spoken about in regards to this, a lot of fans look at the money and, and rub their hands together, look at the, the stadium and rub their hands together. But there is a, a bit of a, a murky past there. Why, why should Evertonians potentially be a little bit more concerned about this sort of figure getting involved in the football club? Well, it. It depends on if you think having a murky past or having any kind of uh, uh, history like that is an important or disqualifying factor for your club owner. If you're an Everton that doesn't like the human rights record of um, of Abu Dhabi and the ownership of Manchester City, um, then I don't think you can turn around and say that you want particularly... A, uh, and I'm uh, heavily uh, heavily linked with the Russian state. You know, I, I think those two things kind of uh, don't seem to go together. If you can put all of your moral qualms to one side, then and it's who cares where the money came from, um, uh, then then it, it's not really uh, a problem. The, the, what we know about Usmanov is that he's he's worth about sixteen point five billion dollars. Um, uh, he made his money through uh, metals and mining, and uh, and through also through technology investing. He was one of the first investment investors in Facebook. 
Um, and he made a whole load of money from uh, selling his stake in Arsenal recently. Uh, and you know he he's had to he's had to do that by dealing with all these different figures in the Russian state. Um, and uh, some of that it will lead to um, some concern if you if you care about the kind of the morality of business making in 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 Russia. But if you don't care uh, where the money comes from, then um, then it's not really a, a, an issue. I'm, uh, if Alicia Usmanov wants to take over a football club, I don't think the Premier League is going to uh, going to stop it. Put it like that. You mentioned there about the the sales from Arsenal as well recently. I think looking at it from the outside, they always felt as though that was potentially going to be a deadlock that would last for for a lot longer. Obviously, mm. he decided to, to sell his shares in Arsenal Football Club. Throughout his his past and, and the way in which he's made his money, and, and you mentioned the different ways in which he's invested throughout his career, has he been someone in the past who has gone from one thing, sold something on, and then gone on to the next thing? So I'm sort of looking at this through, through a lens of he sold his, his Arsenal shares and he'll want to get straight back into Everton in, in, in a similar sort of environment. Is that the sort of path he's taken, or does he tend to take a, a bit of time out between each of his different ventures? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. It's hard to say because I think football is a unique case. He's clearly a bit of a sports fan. He's kind of president of the International Fencing Union uh, uh, and things like that. Um, and Arsenal felt like a bit of a passion project, but also a great, you know, he, he, he's one of his good friends is Roman Abramovich. Um, and, you know, at, at that level, it's ownership of a club is... is I'm sure ego and reputation, uh, reputation driven as much as um, uh, an asset and an investment. So football may be a unique case. What we know with Arsenal is that um, the original Arsenal board and um, really didn't want Alicia Osmanov anywhere near their club and um, got much closer to Stan Kroenke, who's eventually the US um, sports mogul who who is now the ultimate owner and. Uh, Usmanov tried really hard to take over Arsenal. Um, he offered 1.3 billion to buy about 70% of the uh, of the club from Kroenke, and Kroenke held firm. Um, and and eventually, when you put that sort of check on the table and it bounces, uh, you end up thinking, well, there's there's no point really carrying on. If the ultimate aim he, he calls himself an Arsenal fan to this day. Mm. Um, but if the ultimate aim is to own a football club in the most high-profile sporting competition in the world, uh, then you could say that he's made some interesting steps with Everton. Like you say, Farad Mashiri um, is heavily connected. But let's be honest, Farad Mashiri's wealth is is pretty much all from his association with um, Alicia Osmanov. He's, um, uh, he's, uh, Mashiri's the executive chairman and, and a shareholder in Osmanov's holding company, USM. Um, his, you know, Osmanov's wealth far, you know, dwarfs uh, anything mm. Mashiri has. Uh, so he's got the money to do it. Uh, the other thing I would say is, in the in in our interview, he said that he's interested in various different ways of investing in 
Everton. He could become a shareholder. He could become a sponsor. He could take the naming rights of the new stadium and things like that. Um, what's unusual about this sort of situation is that if you're interested in trying to take over a club, um, the last thing you do is go in public and say that you want to take over a club because whoever it is sure. knows that you're interested and, and the price goes up. That won't be the case here. I mean, the, these guys are, are, are great mates, are highly connected in, in business and in life. Um, so if Alicia Usmanov really wants to be invested in Everton Football Club, it will happen. So we, it, it's a kind of watch this space territory. Yeah, I mean, knowing what you know about him and what you said there in regards to the way in which you'd frame this, do you maybe get the sense that this was a bit of bravado with a Western journalist after after a few shots of vodka? I think he had a few pints as well, it said, in the piece as well. Do you get the sense it might have been a bit of that? No, I think it's a statement of the obvious, to be honest. Um, like, it, it, it's... The reason why it made a whole load of news is, like like we said, Usmanov doesn't really talk that much. But look at what's been going on at Everton. You know, uh, Mashiri has pumped a lot of money into the club, and the ambition is huge. The ambition is to uh, break into what uh, we in the media started to call the big six, and we all know who the big six are. Um, but they're fighting for four Champions League places every year. Um, and um, Everton now want to make it a big seven um, or, and become a Champions League club and challenge for the Premier League. And there's been a lot of spending in the transfer market. Um, you get rid of Marco Silva, you get in Carlo Ancelotti, look at the background and histories of these guys and you can see what a step change that is. Um and uh, and all of that costs a lot of money. Uh, we know that Everton are about to release their financial figures, and it's going to reveal a lot more losses from um, from compared to last season, which was also loss making. Mm. The debts are rising at the club. The money, the, these things have to be paid for somehow. So how do you do it? You get outside investment and. Um, Mashiri has got one of the most well, uh, w- one of the wealthiest men in the world on speed dial, if not speaking to him every day, it seems obvious that they will continue to get more financially connected within the club. And finally then, um, knowing what you do about Usmanov and his relationship with Farhad Mashiri and, and how he went about his business at Arsenal, if, if this was to happen and he was to get more involved in Everton Football Club, what sort of method of investment would you foresee it being? Um, you know, you mentioned there about sponsorship, he, he could take over the club, he could he could essentially name the stadium after after his company. What what sort of way would you imagine he'd go about it? So th- this is, that's a really great question because we just don't know. He never got his hands on Arsenal or sure. had any control. He even though he was the second biggest shareholder, he 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 wasn't put on the board of Arsenal, um, and that's highly unusual that you, you just just. The way companies work, that is an odd situation. Even though he would, he wanted that, so he had no control of the day-to-day running of the club. I think if you take his public statements um, and how he, he spoke about Arsenal in the past and Everton now, I think he would. Uh, if I was, if I was guessing, he would invest a lot more into the club. 
But by the way, we have to remember that there are limits to what you can and can't do these days. You know, we have financial fair play rules. Um, my guess is that if Everton somehow went on an unbelievable winning run a la Liverpool, um, let's say, and got into the Champions League, they would struggle to um, uh, be within the rules of financial fair play mm. this season and next season. Um, so, you know, you've got to do it sustainably. You could, gone are the days of Roman Abramovich and um, Abu Dhabi um, kind of just buying tons and tons of players and spending hundreds of millions on the club straight off the bat because of that. So you have to build um, a bit more steadily along the way and make that make that work. You know, you have to get these sponsorship deals in. Um, you have to get the new stadium up and running um, uh, and things like that. So I would say, yes, you would get a lot more spending. Um, you would have somebody with deep pockets who would carry on doing that. But you've got to do it sustainably over time as well to really go forward and, uh, and push on. And look, I, it's one of those things where it's already happening. You know, Mashiri has shown himself to be an ambitious owner who's already spending quite a lot. The questions I, I would say for Everton fans is, is that smart spending? Look at what's happening, um, uh, uh, you know, on the other side of Merseyside, mm. on the red half. Uh, there's a lot of money being spent at Liverpool. There's no doubt about it. But they have built a unbelievably brilliant sporting structure, from the sporting director to the manager to, you know, the owner to, you know, it's all really well connected up, and you're getting the fruits of that right now. Um, you know, Usmanov has Usmanov Mashiri. Nobody there has shown that they can build that sort of structure to succeed, regardless of what. Uh, money you have I think you've seen some of the signings sure. so far you wouldn't say that they, they've been that smart and that clever yet so I would love to sit down with Usmanov and ask if he cares about any and all of that <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that's the best way of knowing what's going to happen next yeah, uh, fingers crossed there. Uh, we'll, we'll see in, in the future. But I really appreciate your time, uh, Marat. Anyway, thanks very much for coming on. And uh, if things develop further down the line, uh, no doubt we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. Thanks very much. We are back on the Blue Room on Radio City Talk for part two. Very fa- big thanks to, to me, Rob. Interesting stuff uh, from the Financial Times on Everton and Alicia Usmanov. Um, unfortunately, the lads in the studio now are going to talk about the Merseyside derby <laughs> on Sunday with me. Uh, glum faces across the desk, I've got, I've got to say. Uh, understandably so. Uh, Connor, Jack and Paul in the studio. Um, we'll get into it. What I want to ask you all, uh, first of all, is that I'll come to you first on this, Jack. When you saw Liverpool's team, did you think Everton were going to win? When I saw Liverpool's team, if anything, I'd say it made me feel a whole lot worse. Um, thinking about it the past sort of 48 hours, and I'm convinced as soon as that team come out, one reason or another, it put the pressure right back on us then. And for some reason, it made me feel less confident. I went into the day thinking, well, it's probably going to be a mixed team similar to what he played in the league game at the start of the month. And I thought, well, if... The manager is going to have us set up better and if we're going to be in a bit of a better position in terms of form, then maybe it'll be a slightly more even game. As it turned out, it was just anything but after that first half, so I'd say no. 
Absolutely not. No, it, it, it certainly didn't. I certainly didn't for one think that team sheet meant Everton were going, were going to win. What it did make me think is that if, if we're ever going to do it, then today is going to be the day, <laughs> which I think a lot of Ever- Evertonians felt the same way. I think, you know, I actually think it was it was probably really good management on Jurgen Klopp's side, wasn't it? I think, you know, to, to give him, you know, gritted, gritted teeth, you know, mm. a compliment to gritted teeth, I think he, he kind of played an absolute masterstroke because going into a Merseyside derby, there's obviously a lot of fanfare and stuff, and he played the kids that it was like, well, if we win, you know, I'm a hero, you know, the kids, it's, it's going to be great. And if we get beast, we can just fall back and say, well, I played loads of kids because we've got loads of fixture congestion. Mm. We're going for the league, we've got the Champions League still. So, I think it, I think Jack's right, I think it did put Everton under more pressure when he put the, put the teams in, because I think everyone sort of thought, you know, bloody hell, this is, this is the chance, this, this is, <laughs> this is the chance. And, you know, I think the first half, we show, we show little bits of, they were inexperienced and, and we were the more experienced half, but I'm sure like we're going to get into the, set, the second half, which just an, horror show from start to finish yeah like uh, Jack and Connor have uh, outlined there uh, I didn't think we were going to win uh, in, in many ways I would have preferred Liverpool to field the full strength team and then to test ourselves against the, against their best 11 and uh, as you've both been saying I think Klopp played a master show he'd obviously planned to do that it put all the pressure back on us again and uh, I was trying to compare Everson's performance at on Sunday with Aston Villa's performance in the League Cup and one thing Aston Villa did they got the early goal and once they got the early goal that made a massive difference to them but the more the game went on and as those chances weren't being taken you just thought it's not going to happen here for us and uh, in the second half you know has has been well reported where Everton were in the second half I have absolutely no idea and I mean if you remember when you were back at school, say you're in year 11 and some year 7 wants a game of football with you and you played them on the backfield and you'd humiliate them, wouldn't you? you put them through the paces, you do tricks, you'd show them who was boss. And it was almost like that in reverse. That the experienced Everson players just let themselves be completely outmaneuvered, outwitted, outfought by a gang of whippersnappers and it just added to the embarrassment from my point of view. It was like that scene in Mike Bassetting the manager where he tries, <laughs> to, he tries, he tries <laughs> to get the ball three hundred the ball I think you're right there Paul and you know I'll, I'll come to, to you on this one Connor. It's, I think Klopp this season in, in these two games against us it's almost like the first derby where we lost 5-2 he said well these aren't good enough to live with our you know, half strength side the second one, it's always been like we don't actually care about this, but I reckon these probably aren't good enough to beat our, yeah. you know, second slash third string side. And I think that that's a that's a it's a damning indictment, I think, on the mentality of these players more than anything, isn't it? Because you, you, yeah, you, absolutely, you, and, it, and it probably shows about how far the two clubs are apart, doesn't it? In terms of in terms of where they where they're currently at, and I know we don't like to talk about you know Liverpool and Everton comparisons, etc., but. At the same time, I think in, in, in on days like this, you have got to draw a comparison because you know if we want to be up there and be challenging, and you know if Mercedes right in what he's saying in terms of he wants to be you know become an elite force in football, then unfortunately we've got to look at Liverpool because right now this minute they're the benchmark, they're the benchmark in club world football. So it, it is a damning indictment of of basically it's almost as if like he, he's he's a fan when it comes to Derby Jurgen Klopp and he, he's a Liverpool fan and it's like well we, we know we've got one over these before we even play them, so mm. you know. I can do what I want because the, the fear is on their side and it's going to take something special for these to, to come and get over that fear and I think we hope that there's the something special will come on the weekends. It didn't 
and it's going to go on now again till mm. till next season. And I think that the big thing for the, this one though was that the, the league one he was mitigating circumstances, wasn't he? I think everyone kind of knew that Marco Silva was. They were on the floor. But yeah, was, was, it, was, it, was in the you know was almost. He's a, a husk, he's a husk as a manager. Did, you know, there, there was there was an indication, wasn't there, that if if, if the, we hadn't had a midweek game, then he would have been sacked after anyway, Leicester. Yeah. But because of the tight turning around, he wanted they, they gave him another game, and it did at the time. I feel like we, we just wrote the game off before we even got out ourselves yeah. because it was like, well, they said they just get sacking him, bringing an replacement in. We'll just we'll just put him out there, and yeah. you know, you kind of know after half an hour when we were three one down, and he takes a debay off, and he's having to change formation, and it was just everything from went from bad to worse that night. Sunday felt different. Sunday felt like, you know, Carl Anschloss, he, he got one over on Klopp already this season. He's, if he's the manager who's actually out with the Klopp on numerous occasions in the last couple of seasons, and it he was he was let down by by his, the plays he picked. But the only good thing is, is he's seen firsthand, mm-hmm. you know, four weeks into his tenure, what he's got to work with and what he needs to do to improve, which has probably opened his eyes more than I imagine it probably it, it would have done if we'd have gone there and won. It probably would have peeped over the cracks. Yeah, but yeah. we would have taken that, wouldn't we, Connor? Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. One of the lads next to me in the in the ground said, uh, like, once the first half turned and the chances were coming, he said, "Do you think if we do get this win, it's going to feel like a bit sort of glass half empty sort of thing?" And I said, "To be honest, any sort of win, I don't know how you could ever look at that like that." As it was, it wasn't to be anyway. But now I think what Connor said is right. The the match. In the start of December, it had the feel of like the last days of Martinez before we went to play yeah. Sunderland. So I think with that, don't like writing games off with the um, what is it expected defeats and expected <laughs> victories. But at the same time, it was a game where if it did, if it wouldn't have been in that midweek, he wouldn't have been in charge for it. In terms of the game at the weekend, I just when I seen the lineup, the thing for me was like, well, Origi's still playing, so I thought, well. If anything bad happens, it's probably going to be like he's like the one that always seems to get, get back against us yeah. whenever it is. But then the fact that it wasn't even him, it was that sort of feeling coming out the ground. Not only disappointment and anger at how much we'd let another good chance go begging. It was just that well, at what point does it start becoming like? Is it is it actually going to change? Because you see the lineups we've had, we played in all different circumstances with a whole different team, loads of different players in all sorts of form in all sorts of circumstance and I just feel like that one on Sunday probably got to me more was because well, when's it ever going to be as good an opportunity as that it wasn't like there was a a Gerard even in his, his twilight years to yeah. do it or one of the good like the, the, the very very good front three they've got or even a Van Dyke at the back like you'd seen when Villa played their kids the other week okay the teams might not have been exactly the same but was it Jonathan Kodiaia scored yeah, a hat yeah. trick? Yeah. And he's Villa's like third choice striker. And you're thinking, well, what is it that's different about playing them? Okay, they were at Villa Park, but I just don't see what the difference is. I really don't. Yeah, I think as you said, Jack, I mean, the, I think it was more the fact that Villa scored the first goal. I think one of those early chances has gone in for us. Well, I'm reasonably confident we might have gone on to, to win that game. But as you say, you can just see the Liverpool players growing in confidence. Yeah. And, you know, the way the crowd was getting behind them as well. And you can, <clears throat> you can only speculate what Klopp's half-time tour was like too. Like, you've done brilliantly here, lads. There's nothing to beat. You can go out and win this in the second half. And uh, what our half-time tour was, I've no idea. Because the way the players came out in the second half, you know, it was... A, 
an absolute non-performance. And uh, I think the stats said afterwards we didn't have a shot on target in the second half. Now put that into context against a team of you know, the majority of whom were under twenty, the, the majority of whom had not played in the Premier League before. That's a really, really damning statistic, isn't it? It's disgraceful, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think as well. The, the big thing for me was. You know, you go go behind. We've got twenty minutes, twenty twenty minutes, twenty plus minutes to go, including stoppage yeah. time, and we didn't even probably get a cutlery no, alone in the kitchen less, sink. Less you know, happened you know, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, if anything, the misplaced passes, the overhead crosses, come more and more yeah, frequent yeah, than, yeah. than ever did it before, and that's the real disappointing thing. Because you think, well, we've got twenty minutes now to rally. Yeah. You know, if you get a goal, we have to take them back to Goodison. Fine. Yeah. You take that. Yeah. You think, yeah. well, yeah. Course, you know, because you yeah. think yeah. he's probably going to play the same team at Goodison yeah. because yeah. he'll say, well, it's a replay. I wasn't keen on the first game. Yeah. I'm not keen on an, yeah, yeah. A, another game. Another game. Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't well in the first game, so they'll have another go. You think oh, you know, we'll be at home, you know, with the crowds or whatever. Mm. But we didn't even look like threatening in, in that sense. And you know, I think that's the most dis- disappointing thing. And you know, even even the subs. I know he made three subs, but they made very little impact. Yeah. You know, oh. if anything, I think the midfield was just as bad with Fabian Delph in there as it was with Morgan Schneider and Gilfie Sigurdsson, which yeah. is a damning indictment because yeah, yeah. you're hoping <laughs> that. For a long part of the season, he's been the one who people have hung, hung the hat on and said, well, he can be a common influence, he can be a leader, he can, you know, kind of be, be the main focal point of the midfield. And we were just as bad with him in there as we was, you know, with the other two. So it, it, the, the big thing for me was, was the last 20 minutes was, was really frightening because it just showed that there's no height, there's no heart, there's no... Yeah. There's no, there's no, yeah. there's no fight. There's no nothing really. It's a lack of self belief, wasn't it? As well, Connor, as you mentioned, they mentioned about Fabian Delp being a leader. I mean, there was no leadership on the pitch in the second half when you're looking for experienced pros. I mean, most of that team have played over 100 Premier League games. They must have the world or the knowledge to know how to get teams back into a match and how they let themselves be so intimidated and why they had such a lack of heart, resilience, or desire. Knowing what was at stake for Everton fans, knowing there were eight and a half thousand fans there desperate to see us do something at Anfield mm-hmm. and to turn up a performance like that I mean I don't know the people you, you, you kind of associate with who are Everton fans but most of my friends are still trying to recover it's the most depressing defeat they can recall in a long long time mm-hmm. I think the point about mentality in derbies is it's not something I've ever really fully bought into because I think down the years they just, I just tended to have a better team than the ones that have played at mm-hmm. home and you know there were a few times on the David Moyes where we finished above them and the teams you could say were a about the, I don't think we'd ever we were ever better than them, but they were they were about the same. You know, we finished above them by three points here and there. I think it was three seasons and four, something like that. Maybe then, but recently, I don't think it's been a case of that. I think it's been a case of quality. But I think the point you make there, Jack, in regards to how we're looking at this, saying if not if not now, when are we going to mm-hmm. do it? And you know, you, you've got that apprehension before the game. I think it's fine for us to have that. But a set of players who are largely new to all this, yeah, and yeah. you know, <laughs> shouldn't have it. And players who have played in big games on, on big stages, and I imagine most teams would have framed that differently. It felt like our lads were very much a case of, "Well, we're never going to get a better chance to, to win this this game," you know, and and they, they felt the pressure. Mm-hmm. But I imagine if any other Premier League team went there, or Championship team, or <laughs> League One team went there, they'd be saying. We're never going to get a better, better chance to beat these. Let, let's have a go yeah, at them and do yeah. it properly. And it was sort of the opposite for us. Instead no, of like, oh no, we need to beat them. We can't not beat them. Yeah. So then it flips over, then doesn't it? And yeah. everything's on us to do it. Yeah. And, and you compare our performance with Tranmere's at Watford, were away against a Premier League team. They come back from three 0 down. Yeah. It just shows the difference. A bit of resilience, a bit of character, and a bit of leadership makes at every level of the game. Yeah. I, I think this this is the problem now, though, isn't it? Because this is no longer like. A manager, a certain group of players. You know, David Moyes was, was obviously pelted with the the mentality thing for a, a, a large part of his tenure, wasn't he? And a lot of them players he had kind of 
you know, they get there and they bottle it type thing. But I do agree with you, Matt. I think there was a lot of times where they were best on us. And and even even Keelan seems team, but they always had a standout player. They always had a, a star in the yeah. They had Suarez, Gerard won derbies by himself for yeah. Manfield, didn't he? Because, like you said there, he relished the thought of they're not going to beat us. If I have to go 110% here just to get over the line, I'm going to do it. But this is like, this is not. 20 odd years now isn't it you know it's, mm-hmm. how many managers have been there how many squad set of players have been there you can't just well, you can't look can you no more just the the, the the players or the manager or because there's been so many who've gone there and tried and failed that it almost feels like there is something somewhere that <laughs> it's just in the cog of the wheel that's yeah, just not, yeah. not right it's under our skin isn't it it's under our skin yeah, and fingernails yeah. as a football club it's, it's like it's like a chronic illness that we can't there's, there's no way it feels like there's no way of curing it we need like some kind of miracle cure whether that's a a, a stunning world-class player we stumble across that can have to drag us out mm. of this yeah. or a manager which we sort of hope Carlo Ancelotti can be mm. I don't know it's but, like um, even that Jag Yelka moment was an equaliser wasn't it yeah. yeah like you know if that was them that's a winner isn't it yeah yeah. 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 and that's that I think is like the difference and the other thing that's annoyed me this week do you know that team that we put out on Sunday was that the exact same team that turned Chelsea over because nine nine of the same yeah. lads yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 honestly it's absolutely baffling and you compare what would that Chelsea team do if they went and played that Liverpool side and you can't no. say it's anything other than mentality as it was yesterday because uh, Sunday sorry yeah uh, really, really disappointing now <laughs> uh, just before we finish uh, we're going to talk about some individual players in the final part which, <laughs> which should be fun um, I'll come to you first on, on this one Paul um, a lot of people inside the stadium a lot of people on social media afterwards uh, were infuriated by Ten or maybe nine, and Mason Holgate sort of half came over to the fans, but certainly scored off pretty quickly afterwards. But um, Jibril Sadibi, who was on loan, of course, was the only lad who came over and really acknowledged the supporters. He copped a bit of stick. A lot of people told him where to go, but he, but he came over. Um, but a lot of people are quite angry about the players just shooting down the tunnel straight after. And it's, it's not something I've always been annoyed about in the past when they've done it, but it does leave a bit of a bit of taste, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's professionals. They have a duty to acknowledge the fans, no matter how bad their own performance has been. And you know, the money they're paid on a weekly basis, they are paid to take criticism from the fans. They're not immune from that criticism. So I thought it was really poor that the players didn't go over and at least you know, show acknowledge the fans for their you know, unstinting support and, and for letting them down as well. So I thought it was really, really poor. And uh, you know, I, I was disappointed that only Sadibi and Holgate had the guts and courage to go over. You know, And even Jordan Pickford, who always claims to be on the fans' side, he didn't even bother going over at the end either. And certainly, if I was Ancelotti, I think one of the first questions I'd be asking the dressing room is, why did you not acknowledge the fans? To me, it's a part of football. I mean, every time Bournemouth play at Goodison, don't you notice, their whole bench and the whole backroom staff all go over to the away supporters en masse and applaud them, even when they've been beaten 3-4-0. I think it's a given. If you are playing away from home, the fans have sacrificed their time, the money, they've coped with the inconvenience of, of, of weird kickoff sound for the FA Cup. There's a moral obligation, in my opinion, to go over and acknowledge the fans. Well, does this tell us anything about the, the mentality, potentially, uh, as well? Yeah, it does. I think, I think you know, Gilfie Sigurdsson's team attempt afterwards to kind of explain why they didn't go over oh, yeah. was just kind of dug the bigger just dug them a bigger hole and mm. you know kind of <laughs> left people more angry I think than what they already <laughs> was I think it's just embarrassing isn't it it's, it's embarrassing I mean you, you know you look back at you know Sylvan Distan at Wembley a couple of years ago when he made that you know yeah, yeah. horrific mistake against against yeah. Liverpool and you know everyone was you know dead on the feet that day basically you know at what they witnessed but at least they had the good grace to kind of walk around 
the half of Everton and put his hand up and apologise. And okay, he might have been told where to go at the time, yeah. and there was a bit of anger. But you've got to respect that he didn't hide, he didn't go straight down yeah. the tunnel. He, he didn't, yeah. you know, he didn't disappear. It's, it just says a lot, and then you see that video, don't you, with Seamus Coleman and, and Mason Holgate yeah. where they're, they're arguing yeah, with yeah. The, it. Just, it just all leaves a, a bit of sour taste, doesn't it? Because you're just thinking, why, why? You know, you probably show a bit more fight there than what you did in the second. <laughs> it just, I, I think what, what Paul said there, though, was Ancelotti asking questions. He also scurried down the tunnel as fast as he could. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it would be hypocritical if he was to take the moral yeah. high ground and say yeah. they're a bit wrong because if you watch the footage, he can't get down that tunnel quick enough. Mm-hmm. So, okay, fair enough, he wants us to roll up the players. But he could have easily gone, you know, 20 yards onto yeah. the pitch and present up to the fans and give them a clap. You know, it's yeah, it's a two-way thing. I know he said afterwards, I spoke, I spoke to them and stuff like that. But he could have rolled them at any, any yeah. time, could he, when he got in that dress. He didn't have to be first in there to, yeah. to have a right go with them. It just... It just all felt very, very poor, and it kind of summed up the the the, the, the way the day was. Yeah, I just think there's an absolute distinct lack of leaders. It's like all the nonsense with how many different captains I've had, and I'm not saying yeah. it's not about the armband. And I know we had that thing when we signed Ashley Williams, Sigurdsson, and um, Rooney. Rooney. We signed everybody's <laughs> captains, and, yeah. we, and, we, <laughs> and, and, and we were still dreadful. But like, I think it's just more a thing of having leaders in the squad, whether they wear the armband or not. Like. Who was captain? Was it the Coleman staff Coleman, captain? Coleman, and then yeah. Yeah. gave it Dean, to Dean. Or, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I just, I just think there's a thing there where like, whoever should be captain, whoever it's going to be, if it is going to be Coleman going forward long term, whoever, you just need to see somebody like cajoling the players. Okay, we've been beat. It's been horrendous, but just show some sort of front, because otherwise, what I think must happen. I'm not saying he's a soft touch or whatever, but you're not telling me if that's under. A captain that the respect that they all respect, and that they're all a bit sort of you'd say intimidated by. They'd be scuttling down that tunnel. I, I think it starts with that, and I think I'd be very surprised if a lot of that squad are still there at the start of next season. Yeah, yeah but still, you're saying that as well, Jack. I mean, one thing that struck me: you may or may not agree with this. There was no scouts players on the Everton team, and I've always thought in the derby you need at least one local-born lad on the side. So I'd have played Baines over Dino at left back. Purely with being a derby game, and you know, maybe even made him captain for the day. Yeah, um, we're going to talk about some of those players in the final part of the show. I'll be right back on the Blue Room here on Radio City Talk. We are back <laughs> for the final part of the Blue Room here on Radio City Talk. Uh, Paul, Jack, and Connor still in the studio. Um, Connor, I'll come to you first on this one. Um, felt like a watershed moment for the team, um, and certainly probably a watershed moment for a lot of individuals in that side at the weekend. Um, and the ones who've been copping the most flack are probably the three most experienced players in Everton's side at the weekend, in Theo Walcott, um, Morgan Snyder and, and Gilfie Sigurdsson. Uh, what did you make of their displays? It, I think Walcott was an interesting one because he, he actually started OK. I mean, he, you know, he's done well for Charleston's chance, but he, he pulls the ball yeah. back. and But then he just kind of slowly but surely went back to the Theo Walcott of, of old ways. And, you know, I think his overhead cross and then that touch where he just touches out of play, kind of summed up the field walker that we've all we've all kind of seen for the last you know, eighteen months. I think Sigurdsson and, and Schneiderlin, it's, it's nothing new, is it? I think you know we we've long sort of harped on about the, the pair of them not being good enough, not not having enough influence on games, and I just think on Sunday the whole world, the whole world finally witnessed what what we've been seeing for for a long long time. I think you look at you know certainly Mark and Schneiderlin. You know what is he doing? It's just you know on the goal. It's, on the goal, yeah. yeah, yeah it's just yeah, you know, yeah. it's just so so tame. You know, it's laughable what he, what he's actually trying to do. And 
you know, he's the one who you kind of, you just, you can never get your head round because he comes in. He'll go totally missing for months on end, come back in, and he'll do well. He done well against Chelsea and Ferguson's first game yeah, when, when, he, when he made a, a return. Yeah, 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 everyone everyone kind of thought, you know, if we can get him back on track, you know, we'll, we'll be all right. Then he gets injured, goes missing, and, and then on, on Sunday he performed like we've seen so often where he just doesn't look interested and doesn't really look like he wants to be there. Mm. I think with, with Schneider, I think there's, there's, there's real problems with in terms of mentality last year, I don't think I think he thinks he's bigger than Everton Football Club. Mm-hmm. I think he thinks that he, he should be playing at a higher level, should be playing at a better team. Yep. And I think Sigurdsson's just someone who's gradually fell off a cliff, hasn't he? I think he come in with such high hopes, all that money they spent on him. He was I think he was a little bit hard done to when he first comes to the club because he, he was brought in as the, the third number ten that summer, wasn't he? And yeah. Yeah. You know, it was for the biggest money. And we were trying to like, get them all on the team and they were all alternating on a weekly basis and, and he didn't really have a forward to play with, which I always thought was a it's kind of saving grace because, you know, when he was the most as most effective at Swansea, he had Lorente to, to to kind of pin crosses into and, you know, hit the target man. He didn't really have that Everton because obviously Lukaku gone and we haven't replaced mm-hmm. them and et cetera, et cetera. But now you, there's no excuse for him. You can't stick any for him. Don't you probably think he says he's not a central midfielder, but you know there's no way he should be. His legs should be gone at his age, and you know uh, at this point in his career, nothing might have done there. Like, I mean, he does. I mean, you, 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 without sounding too harsh and without sounding you know going over the top, he looked finished. Mm-hmm. He looked like an old man on Saturday, on Sunday. Sorry, he looked like an old man up against not even a kid because Lallana's not. Not a spring chicken himself. He's probably he, older, isn't he? He's, he's probably, older, he's probably yeah. as old, yeah, yeah. But he ran him into the he was, ground. He absolutely did. He run circles around him for 90 he, minutes. He, I mean, I remember one of the goals at Anfield in the, 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 the December derby where I think Lallana's goal at Anfield, sorry, in the, in the first derby in December. And yeah. it's Sigurdsson's fault because he, he's, his, he's his man and he can't keep up with him to track the run. So he gets to the edge of the penalty area, stops. Lallana just carries on running and puts the ball in the back of the net. And you can see, you can see everyone looking to say, he's your man. But he, look, he, was, he was looking to say, I'm shattered, like, I've just chased him for 20 yards. And again on Sunday, he just got run into the ground. And I think the only good thing with, with Sunday, if there is any positive, is that Carl Antrossi's seen firsthand why yeah. why there's so much criticism and why this team struggled the way it has. Because I think if before that, he probably would have been a little maybe complex because we have done well, you know. Yeah. We have done well with ground-up results. We've, we've, you know, cased a couple of chances. City would just look, look dead on our feet. But Sunday, I think, was the real eye-opener. And... I think Sigurdsson, he looked finished. Yeah, I, I think Walcott aside, I thought Walcott had a, just a very much a, a Walcott performance. I thought, as you said, first half, especially after Milner got hurt, I thought he got in behind their left-back a good few times, a few over-crosses, a few nice crosses, and, and just looked quite threatening. Then second half, went into his shell, and as you say, was kicking the ball straight out of touch. And That wasn't the one that annoyed me. It was the, the, the fact that the two people we picked in centre-mid were... Very experienced, but they're not experienced in the fact that like they're like 37, 38. They've, they've just got good Premier League experience. <laughs> yeah. But I think watching that, it, it became like sort of quite apparent that I don't really know what they were doing because I've seen some criticism come in for both the strikers and also the centre-halves. Now, OK, like, take it on the chin. I don't think anybody particularly comes out of the game with much no. credit. But what I would say is, well, OK, fine. But the two people are in the heart of the midfield playing against... Okay, not kids. Lalana and whoever else it was. I'm not actually too Chirabella sure. And he's a bit of a joke figure with their fans, isn't he? Yeah, think a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and uh, yeah. obviously Jones, who scored the the, the winner. The yeah. winner, right? Now, my thing with watching that was, well, what exactly were they picked in the middle of the park to do? Because I didn't see him sort of 
protecting, well, the goals, evidence enough of that, sorry, is that it didn't say in protecting the centre-halves, but nor were they providing the front two with any sort of service. They weren't playing in any particular... They just seemed to just exist around the centre circle without having an influence on the game, positive or negative, going forward or backward. And I think, you know, going back to that Chelsea game for a minute, they kept it very simple. We played the compact 4-4-2. They tackled everything. They hit the wide players early and they just stay in shape. I didn't see evidence that they stayed in shape, but they just stayed in the same shape. And it was just very, very static and not really doing anything. They were just in the middle of the park. But again, not influencing things one way or another. And I think they were the two biggest culprits on, yeah. uh, on Sunday. Yeah, I totally agree, Jack. I mean, interesting point you made there about Sigerson and the tackling because you know, the winning goal against Burnley came from the Sigerson tackle on, on the on the touchline, didn't it? That led to the cross from Sidibe that Calvert-Lewin finished off for the goal. But the, you know, I was you didn't what, win one tackle at the weekend. Yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. Like, genuinely, that is an actual start here. I'm just, <laughs> just saying it at times. <laughs> yeah. But like yourself, Jack, I mean... Um, I was looking at Snydland and Sigerson thinking, why aren't they imposing themselves on the game here? I mean, how many international caps has Sigerson got for his country? He He's used to playing in difficult matches where the side's under pressure. He's played, yeah. he's played at World Cups, he, he's played at European Championships. Why is he not taking responsibility? You know, if he's kind of our fourth choice for a captain, he should be he should be standing up to the challenge. Snydland, like himself, one good game, then he goes back to type up once again. Now, when he played at Southampton, he is unrecognisable Southampton compared to play we've got in a blue shirt now. And Theo Walcott, um, I just don't get Theo Walcott. I, I mean, um, I think I mentioned before that uh, Cheng Tosin goes to the local barber shop by me and Crosby, and uh, he's quite friendly with the owners there. And apparently, he, he, he says in training that Walcott never passes the ball in training. No one knows what he's going to do with the ball. So all the players are so frustrated with him, and they will stop making runs because they know. Walcott is not going to deliver the ball that he needs. Mm. Now, that could be hearsay. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But when you saw, you mentioned before, Connor, th- that misplaced cross in the second half when I think we had three on two going towards their goal. And to deliver, you know, for a player of his experience, he's probably played close to 500 Premier League games. To deliver a cross like that, I, I just thought it was appalling. Luca Dina, I was immensely disappointed oh, yeah. with he's our, time, uh, he, he has really struggled this season his touch his touch has really gone and he, you know, for me at the moment I, I would give some consideration to maybe Baines being given a few games because at the moment I think Dean just needs a break from the first team because yeah. he's nothing like the player he was for us last season and you compare his delivery from set pieces last season with how he's been this season it, it, it's just not the same player in my opinion just just one a wider point on, on that all the players we've mentioned there so Walcott, Sigurdsson, Schneidlin, Dean, yeah, who we're all quite frustrated with from Sunday and I've, I've been so far this season. They've all got one thing in common, and that is they've all had the big move earlier in their careers, whether it's Tottenham, Barcelona, whoever, Arsenal, obviously, for, for Walcott and, and United for Schneidlin. And now they've found their way back to us again. Is, is, this, is this a model? That the club should be looking to, to continue doing because they, you know it. You look at our squad currently, and you'd say there's another one in there in, in Yeri Mina. Uh, Sidibe's come from from Monaco. Uh, you know, haven't haven't won things there. Alex Iwobi came from Arsenal. Is, is this is this how we should be I, doing things? I think I think Luka Dean kind of gets away with it a little bit because yeah. he, he's having a ton of time at the minute. But yeah, he, he was outstanding last season. You know, he on his day, and I don't think he's fully fit. Yeah, I honestly yeah. believe the club have rushed him back. Yeah. I think. He got injured, didn't he? And then he couldn't. United. He got injured against uh, 
Chelsea yeah. when Baines come on didn't he yeah, yeah. and then he put him on against United and he got injured again yeah. and then a couple of weeks later he put him on against Arsenal and yeah. he got injured again and it's almost you feel like saying Give him a if he keeps getting injured all the time, just give him a, say, oh, the final line, just, give, yeah. just give, him, yeah. give him two weeks off, three weeks off, yeah. and say, you know. Well, those are late Baines as well. Ex- exactly, you know. Yeah. And in them games, really and in them Baines, like, you've done really well. And yeah. it, so, yeah. you know, I think that, that it, it, I don't think he's fit. I think the others, I believe, are a clear example of the Steve Walsh recruitment model, which we went down, which was basically us just sign the best players of other teams. I think if you, you look at, you know, the, the players. Who we did sign under Steve Walsh, a lot of them were just the best players of other teams below us. You know, you think of Pickford at Sunderland, Michael Keane at Burnley, mm-hmm. Sigurds at Swansea, um, Balassie, Ashley Williams Balassie. at Swansea, yeah. Balassie yeah. at Palace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think Balassie was because it's hard, it's better. <laughs> but um, I think they're just they're clear examples of that. You know, then you look at Cumin, obviously, was key on Sterling because he'd done so well for him at Southampton, understandably so, and he, he wasn't getting the look at United. But I just think they, you know, Walcott's the same. Obviously, you know, he comes under Allardyce, but they just—it's just a mm-hmm. thing of we, that model of well, we'll just pick the best players up who are below us or who we think we can get, you know, and that does need to change. And that—that's where Marcel Brands coming I mean, because. I mean, kind of about what you said. You made a really interesting point there. Do you think the age profile of those players as well is a factor? Because I think Walcott had been twenty-eight when we bought him. Six was twenty-eight yeah. when we bought him. Balassi was twenty-eight when yeah. we bought him. Yeah. Do you think that's something that should, yeah, that should be looking yeah. at as well? Absolutely, and I, I know this is the thing now where I think. When Marcel Brands needs to really stamp his authority on things because he spoke a long time about changing the identity, getting younger players in, you know, being the ones to kind of bring these players to life, almost you know, these young lads to, to life and give them a stage to shine on. But we haven't really seen that yet, have we? You know, Luke, Luke Dean come in, but he wasn't really a, a no mark, up and coming, yeah. you know, youngster no, no one knows about. No, no. And it's where now I think we need to see stuff from him because, you know, he's escaped scot free in a lot of what's gone on recently. I think people you know, are starting to. Get on yeah. to him a little bit. And so we should because everyone else has been vindicated and he's been behind a lot of the recruitment yeah. policy in recent times. And there's you know, there's only so we can blame Steve Walsh we want, but we've got to start looking at the now some of the plays. Mm-hmm. You know, Moise Keane is struggling massively. Mm-hmm. There's there's real question marks over him going forward because you know, I've been a big big, you know, kind of fan of his in terms of supporting him and when people are getting on his back. But there's nothing to hang his hat, your hat on him for you because he doesn't look like he's comfortable. He can't run with the ball. No. <laughs> his first touch leaves a lot to be desired. He doesn't really get himself in positions where you think he's going to score. A lot of the positions he gets himself require a kind of world-class... You think it's City, the overhead kick, where... Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. that's absolutely great <laughs> if it goes in. Same with Liverpool the weekend in, yeah. in a dime minutes. It's absolutely great if it goes in. But the form he's in the minute, it's probably not yeah. going to go in. There's more chance of it hitting Rosehead. So th- there's got to be questions asked now because we're moving forward to... You know, Marcel Rand's going up to his... Second, end of his second season is, at the end yeah. of this one you've got to start seeing things where he's you know yeah. bringing things and also you know the, the lack of academy products Absolutely. you know yeah. who, come in, who come into the ranks because you know, Anthony Gordon's had a look in the last couple of weeks but for me he's been underused mm-hmm. I think he should have been given a lot more game time over the, the Christmas period but we haven't seen no one kind of come through from, from no. them ranks and Marcel Brands was also big on academy football when he come and stuff like that so there's a lot of questions that, that yeah. he's answered yeah. moving forward in terms of Recruitment because ultimately that's what's killing us at the minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think just going back to the transfer policy uh, for a second, I don't necessarily think there is a problem with signing good players from teams below you. I actually think it's quite a good model to have. However, I do think, as you said, then Paul, the age profile and the character of the pro of the player is equally as important. The biggest example I can think of 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 two: one unfortunate for the Reds and one for now at United 
was Maguire and Robertson at Hull. Yeah. Now, I'm not Harry Maguire's biggest fan by a long stretch, and I don't think at the best there's much between him and Michael Keane, but I will say I think he's a lot stronger mentally mm. than what Michael Keane seems to be. As for Andy Robertson, I believe we were offered him at the time, and I think you've only got to look at the levels he's gone up since leaving. I do think there are still players out there, the ones we used to get with Moyes, like the likes of your Kales, Jagielkas, Lescott's, players that, okay, they're coming from teams that, okay, are worse than Everton, but they do also have a lot of fight and a lot of drive to get to the top. Whereas signing people like Balassi, who probably thought all his Christmases had come at once, yeah. a fellow yeah, that yeah. Had never mm-hmm. scored more than, what, three in a season, and he's getting bought for £30 million, of course he's going to sign it and probably feel no affiliation to Everton. Sigurdsson had had his big move once before, hadn't come off. Okay, he'd had a very, very good season at Swansea, but that was probably his plateau then. Mm -hmm. I don't really think he's hit them heights since having a big target man to swing it into. And then you look at the likes of like when we signed Ashley Williams and when we signed Michael Keane. And again, it's just identifying the right characters as much as it is the teams they come from because I don't always think signing cast-offs from... I think it needs to be a mix of both. Yeah. I think you can sign players from teams that are better than you at the time if you can fit them in your squad better than they can. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I do think going for good players from teams below you can be a good strategy if they are the right age and also the right mentally. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Jack. I think, you know, Richarlison isn't an example of that. Yeah. He's, yes. he's 21, yeah. a lower tier. And you he's see, not trajectory. He's, he's, yeah, he's yes, not upward trajectory, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw the thing in the Athletics there about by Oliver Kay quoting George Graham saying, what what you don't want to do is buy players who think they're doing you a favour by coming to your yeah. club yeah. because they played a higher level. Yes. All the players you mentioned before, Mass, fit that category exactly. Yeah. They played the bigger teams and coming to Everson, they're doing a favour. And he, he was kind of making the point as you said there, Jack, you want young upcoming players with the right age profile who've got a point to prove, who know they're joining a big club and know you know, if they do well at Everson, their career is going to go kick on and on to the next stage. Yeah, yeah. Try and become Brucey Dortmund. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, it's the money, isn't it, as well? We, we forked out, you know, yeah. You, yeah. I know Jack said there about the moyes and the, the players, but we were getting them, a lot of them plans for like five million, yeah. up for yeah. five million, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think the max we paid was like six, seven million yeah. for, you know, now we're spending thirty odd million on, you know, average. on, on average, yeah, you know, players, on average, on huge ways. And, and yeah. sadly, I think the way football's gone. And I think now, as well, I said, Con as well, we're buying players who aren't necessarily regular first team players at other clubs. And mm. that, I mean, to me, that that's a basic requirement. If you're buying somebody, they should be first choice in their position at the club they're coming from. And it's not as if United and Arsenal are juggernauts even now. No, you exactly. Know, yeah. You know, they're yeah. probably just, just a bit better than we are. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, if they can't get in those sides, it, it's, you know, it, it needs rethinking anyway. Uh, we've got about three minutes left. Uh, Brighton at the weekend, Jack. Um, what on earth does you do with the team? I've been thinking this since walking <laughs> out of that ground. Um, <laughs> it's going to be five or six changes, hasn't it? Yeah, now, you, the one thing I would say, like, the keeper, I don't think there's anything that's going to change who's in goal. No. Um, I think the back four... Personally, I would rest Dean because he just looks absolutely done in. I think it might just be the same back four, though. To be honest, I don't. I don't think any of them particularly played well, but at the same time, I don't think they're the biggest issue. Midfield, I think Bernard's got to come in, um, and then the thing is with the centre mids, what if he doesn't pick someone from the twenty threes? Is it swapping them to out for Davis and Delph? Probably, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I suppose have they played Let's together? Let's play Holgate in there again. 
he's also been our best centre back and best <laughs> centre back. You can't do both, but yeah, no, because I wouldn't want to see Keith. No, I'd say probably go Davis and Delph, just swap the two out and see. They can't do any worse than Sunday, can they? Yeah. Walcott on the right still? No. <laughs> the only other thing you can do is go with Charleston there and play Keane yeah. with Carver Lillian. Yeah. No, I, I, I think he's got to roll the dice, and I would be shocked if there was any less than any less than four changes. I agree pretty much with Jack said there, but I, I go wildcard gamble and put Andy Gordon on the right. Yeah. Just to inject a bit of pen, a yeah. bit of energy, a bit of pace. Someone who's raw, someone who's, who's going to come in with a, a real point to prove and, and sort of think, well, this is my chance, this is yeah. why I have to go here. And I know it's not his natural position and, you know, people will say, well, you're playing from out of position. But I think just for the rawness and the, the energy that he'll bring and because we need something, we need an injection. We need an injection, something, don't we? I think, you know, I'd, I'd, you can't really see anything other than Charleston Carver doing up top because given that Moise Keane doesn't really look like a goal threat, oh, that would be good to see him maybe give him a chance again. Yeah, yeah, Does yeah. he gamble and think, yeah, well, yeah. but if it goes disastrously long after an hour and he's having to haul him off, it's not great again. It's, you know, it's it's a real dilemma, I think, with Moise Keane coming up shortly because. You keep giving him a chance, but if he doesn't do nothing, yeah. or you give him a start and you having to haul him off after forty-five, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know it's, you're making a rough your own back, aren't you? So yeah. I, I'd bring Bernard in, Charleston, Calvert Lewin, and Gordon on the right, and I, I would put Baines over Dean, uh, Dean right back, uh, left back. Sorry. Yeah, I agree with most of what Conor and Jack have said there. I'd definitely go Baines at left back. I think, like you said, Jack, I'd definitely go in the midfield with uh, Davies and Delph. Not you know mainly because of the lack of the options that we yeah. have there. Yeah. Uh, like you, Connor, I, I think there's nothing to lose by giving Anthony Gordon a go. And, and going back to Moyes Ken as well, it's a, it, it's a real dilemma for Everson with him, isn't it? I mean, I'm always inclined, would it be better if the manager says, you're in your first choice forward for the next five games, or giving you five games, see how you go? Because I just feel at the moment, every time he comes on now, he's trying to over-impress, he's trying to, you know, uh, produce a 15-minute cameo that's going to give him the stars allowed the next time. So I, I think that's a real concern. Um, and like you, must. I've got one or two dads by Pickford still, maybe in a minority here. Oh, we haven't got time to get into that. No. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. Um, yeah. I'll I just... mean, it, it, be, it would be typical of Everton to, to taunt Brighton 3 or 4 nil on yeah. Saturday, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because I mean, I we, hope so. We've seen it time and time again, haven't we? We've, we've yeah. had real disappointments yeah. and then there'll, yeah. there'll be yeah. places we bounce back in an emphatic style. So hopefully we'll... we'll is that be, what you're saying? Is that your prediction? Hopefully. That is four my nil. prediction. Hopefully. 4 nil. 4 nil from you, Jack? I'm going to say 3-1. 1-0. Uh, Oh, oh, I'm sure Goddardson will be full of joy. <laughs> yeah. uh, great stuff. Uh, thanks for all lads. Then nice to finish everybody laughing after what was a pretty downbeat show. Uh, we'll be back again at the same time next week here on Radio City Talk. Searching for just the right job? Whether you're looking for full-time, part-time, or seasonal work, you can get started today. Amazon Jobs offer the whole package with great pay and flexible shifts that allow you to choose when and how much you work. Find a warehouse close to home and discover the role that works for you. To get your application started for an hourly job, go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.